0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. I want to talk to you about the power of worship. This is our last message in a series of four messages in which we are attempting to kind of repristinate the value that we have concerning worship and um, to to help people, perhaps who are new to Gateway, to understand why we do the things that we do. So I've done the person we worship, the priority of our worship, the protocol or the pattern of our worship, and this evening I wanna talk to you about the power of worship. And in speaking about that particular subject, it was really hard for me to know what passage of scripture to use as a text since there are so many throughout the scriptures, both Old Testament and New, that speak to the power that is involved in uh, a worshiping people. What I decided to do was to go to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, which provides the last word actually on many subjects in the scripture, and it certainly does that to the subject of worship. The book of Revelation is full of powerful worship and incredible worship scenes. From John's initial encounter with the, with the risen Christ in chapter one, verse 17, which saw him flat on his face before Christ, to the angel's final exhortation in chapter 22, verse nine, where he says to John, worship God. In this book, worship takes a central place and the message of the last word of worship is incredibly powerful. We're going to concentrate most of our attention in chapters four and five. Chapters four and five are one scene. It's unfortunate, really, that the chapter division comes in the middle of it, but it constitutes one scene, and we are introduced to an incredibly powerful worship event going on around God's throne. And I think it speaks to us something about the power of a people who give themselves to worship. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole chapters. Uh, what, I, what I do want to do is just read you a selection of verses taken from uh, chapter 4 and 5. So chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 reads like this. After this, John says, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. A little later in that same chapter, verses 9 through 11, whenever the living creatures gave glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our our Lord and, and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being." In chapter 5, verse 9 through 14, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits upon the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. And if you read that chapter, it starts all over again. I think that was the original Mexican wave. It starts around the throne and it just made its way out to the very uh, margins of, of creation and then just sort of collapsed in on itself and starts out all over again. Incredible scene of worship. Those two chapters, four and five, obviously, I don't mean to state the obvious, but they're preceded by chapters two and three, which consists of the letters to the seven churches. And the very last word to the very last church, the church at Laodicea, was, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I'll dine with him and he with me. So to gather at the Lord's table where bread and wine are shared is what the church has traditionally called worship. And it seems that as we're looking at this church at Laodicea, that the self-satisfied Laodiceans had neglected or perhaps even scorned worship. And the, church to, uh, the message of Christ to this church was severe and indicting. He says to them, you're wretched, you're poor, you're pitiable, you're blind, you're naked. And his concluding word to them was a metaphor. He said, there is a closed door that needs to be opened. There is a door that separates these wretchedly poor creatures from the bounty of the Lord's table. And Christ is knocking at that door and asking them to come into this feast. So question, what is this door? And what happens when we open it? Now, I don't think it's coincidental that we move from there right to chapter four, verse one, which says, there was a door opened in heaven. this chapter on worship commences with the door being opened and what John finds is is this incredible scene of worship. And as we enter into this worship event, we see a number of incredibly powerful things that begin to happen that I think contain the potential to transform the Laodiceans and anybody like them into fully-fledged followers of the Lamb. And I wanna consider them as we try and unpack this idea of the power of worship. So I want to highlight four things from these chapters that I think worship does as we go through that door and enter in. Number one, worship centers us. Number two, worship gathers us. Number three, worship transforms us. And number four, worship releases us. So let's consider them. Firstly, worship centers us. John says, when I was in the Spirit." And there before me was a throne set in heaven with someone sitting on it. As John enters through this door into this worship service, the very first thing he encounters in the vision is a throne. And the idea or the concept of a throne is one of the central features of the book of Revelation. The the word itself is used 47 times in the 22 chapters of the book. And if you consider related terms, you can add another 70 plus onto that. So this idea of authority centering in a throne is a crucial concept in the book of Revelation, and particularly in these chapters. Everything in the vision of chapter 4 and 5 is described in its in terms of its relationship to, or its orientation to the throne. So verse two says, on the throne. Verse four says, round about the throne. Five, out of the throne. Six, before the throne. Also six, in the midst of the throne. Also six, round about the throne. Everything in these chapters is described in terms of its, its relationship to the throne. The throne is the center point of this worship service. The throne centers authority. You know, E. Stanley Jones once said, when we're in the spirit, we are not simply free to do as we will. There is a throne set to which we must be obedient and subservient. As we come into the worship service, we are orientated toward this central point of authority, the the throne. And the first powerful thing that worship does in us is it centers us. And what I mean by that is it is our nature, I, I believe by creative design to focus on something, to worship something, to ascribe worth to something. I suspect that we really don't have a choice as to whether we will worship. I believe it's inherent in our nature. American author and Pulitzer Prize finalist David David Wallace Foster gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College. Sorry, I said that wrong. David Foster Wallace. He he was not, as far as I know, a professing believer. In fact, not long after this address, he took his own life. But in the address, he made a startling admission. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as athe- atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships, he says. The only choice we get is what we worship. I think Wallace um, recognize the inherent call in every life to ascribe worth to something, and that we are as incapable of not doing that as we are incapable of not breathing. The only choice we have in the matter of worship is what it is that we will focus on. You know, so often in the postmodern West, we've been seduced by sin into making ourselves the hub of reality. We, we worship ourselves. And the rise of narcissism in our culture is incredibly well documented. When we seek to be the center of the universe and to be the central point of authority and worship, we end up ultimately living manipulating and manipulated lives. Eugene Peterson says we become like predators who by stealth approach everybody else like prey so that we can pull them into our center. Without the power of true worship, we, li- we live eccentrically. Now, I'm sure you've heard the word eccentric. We usually use it to describe a person that we think is somewhat odd, a little bit strange. But the word is actually derived from the Greek language, and it means out of center, deviating from a circular path, displaced from the geometric center, not having the same center, I'm sure we've all seen, if not in reality, certainly on TV or something, a clown's bike in a parade where the hub of the wheel is not in the center. It's been pushed eccentrically out of the center. And and as the bike goes along, it has this weird uh, uh, mesmerizing uh, effect in terms of its eccentricity. It, it really th- throws you off. When we're not aligned to the true center through worship. I I believe people get consigned to a life of spasm and jerks, and we are at the mercy of every advertisement, every seductive siren, every every fad, and we move either in frightened panic or deluded lethargy. We're alarmed by specter, and we're soothed by placebos. There's something desperately wrong when we're not centered. When there's no center, then there's no circumference. There isn't any boundary lines. There's no steady direction. There's no sustaining purpose, and I think what I just said is a description of, the, of, of the, the postmodern West. Without the fixed center that the throne and true worship around the throne provides, life becomes eccentric, it becomes chaotic, and people live spasmodically, jerking from one thing to the next. You know, as a, as a pastor, you get to um, look in on many, many people's lives, and one of the things that just strikes me so much about so many people is the, the chaos that surrounds their lives, the, the, the complete lack of a center that helps them make decisions. So they make chaotic decisions. Now, now so often they would say, oh, I'm just being spontaneous. But I, but I suspect that a lot of people don't know the difference between spontaneity and absolute chaos. Listen, by definition, spontaneity means out of the ordinary, out of the box, something that's slightly different from the center. In order to mean something, it actually requires a central point from which it spontaneously deviates. But if you don't have a center point from which you deviate spontaneously, you're not spontaneous, you're just chaotic. And there's a whole chaotic world. And without a center point that worship provides, all you have is confusion and unruliness. Jude describes people like this in his epistle. In verse 13 of that epistle, he calls them wandering stars. The message says of them, lost stars in outer space on their way to the black hole. They're not orbiting around anything. They've lost their center, and so they're just making their way through space completely without rule, without orbit. One scholar says they are comets that stray without random, at random without law. Interestingly, the book of Judges talks about, chapter five, verse 20, stars that operate in their courses. In other words, there are stars that are in orbit and they're predictable. You, you know when they're gonna come around but a lot of people aren't predictable. A lot of people are not spontaneous. They're just chaotic. What worship does is it gives us a center. It gives us an an orbit that governs and directs. In the Old Testament, the people's worship had an established geographical center. And I said a couple of weeks ago that in the New Testament, we don't have that anymore. But the principle exists. Even though it's not geographic, it is a place of centeredness when we worship. But in the Old Testament, it was actually geographical. And they were told, be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, and there observe everything I command you. He said there is a centering place that I want you to gather around. In contrast, by the way, Baal worship, which plagued Israel for centuries, didn't have a central place. They just put up portable shrines wherever they wanted to. Uh, You know, the term was on every hill and under every green tree, is the way Jeremiah described it. They weren't true centers. They were arbitrary locations. And Jeremiah challenged them and said they're delusions, and then he said in chapter 17, verse 12, a glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. There's a center to worship, Jeremiah is saying. And don't do this running off spasmodically, jerking after that and going toward this and, and heading over here. He said, come and let worship center you. Give you an orbit around which you move. Without the centering that true worship creates, so often people in our society settle for casual way stations, every hill and under every green tree, hoping for something easy that will give them an instant sort of sense of, of, of meaning. But people who don't find the true worship, that worship the true center that worship provides, I, I, I liken them to people living in a vast cosmic shopping mall where they go from shop to shop, expending enormous amounts of energy and money and making endless trips, first to meet that need and then that appetite, then this whim and then that fancy. And it seems to me that they live from one partial satisfaction to another interrupted by ditches of disappointment and disillusionment. Worship speaks to that and gives us a true center around which we can move. True worship centers us around the throne as the true and only fixed point. Secondly, worship gathers. Round the throne in this picture of chapter four and five are gathered a vast throng, The 24 elders, the four living creatures, thousands upon thousands of angels, the redeemed and every creature. There is something about worship that pulls us into community and into relationship. And I'll tell you something, worship um, resists two equally destructive extremes. One perhaps associated particularly with the West, the second particularly associated with the East. The Western extreme that worship speaks to and challenges is this individualism of it's just me and Jesus. We've got our own thing going. We don't need anybody else. And true worship challenges that. True worship says, no, you come and you worship in relationship. You worship in community. And the Eastern Extreme that worship challenges is the idea that as we come, we're simply absorbed into the great encompassing ultimate sort of faceless Brahman where we lose our identity like a drop of water entering into the ocean. And neither of those things are true. As we are gathered in true worship around the throne, we maintain our distinctive identities and yet we are arranged in congruent harmonies. It's like we are put into a giant choir And there are altos and there are basses and there are tenors and there are sopranos, but we're singing from the same script and we're singing the same song. We don't lose our identity, but we're brought into congruent harmony. There is something about worship that pulls people into community. Thirdly, worship transforms. I love the picture that Eugene Peterson presents us with from the scene in Revelation chapter four and five. He speaks about us being gathered around a throne that pulsates with light and picks up all the colors in the precious stones that surround the throne. There are precious stones, jasper, carnelian, emeralds, crystal, glass around the throne. And the thing about precious stones is that they are precious because they collect and intensify light. I don't, I'm sure you're aware of this, but light actually is full of color. Our, to our dull eyes, that's it, unperceptive. We don't pick that up. But precious stones select certain colors out of light, intensify us, uh, intensify them, rather, and show the deep glory of the color that was in the light all of the time. Around the throne is the light show of all light shows. The light from the throne pulsating out, picking up the glorious colors in the stones or the stones picking up the glorious color that's in the light. And the redeemed stand and worship in the midst of that scene and our lives are bathed in the beauty and the brilliance of the colors. Lives that have previously been defaced by sin into blurred charcoal outlines are now transformed, changed by and into the colors that wash over them. There is something about worship that transforms us into the very image of the one we worship. And I want to tell you that there's something in worship that as the light shines. God, by the Spirit, picks up things in people and giftings emerge, strengths come out, abilities that he's put there that our dull, unperceptive eyes have overlooked again and again. But in worship, there is something that transpires in the way of God's light, reaching out and suddenly bursting into color in people's lives. There is something that goes on in the lives of people that will give themselves to wholehearted worship. Sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter three, verse 13 in the message translation says, nothing between us and God, our faces shining with the brightness of his face. And so we are transfigured much like the Messiah, our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as we pick up those colors, as they begin to highlight what God has put in us and made in us. We become brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. Friends, the reality is, whatever it is that you revere, ultimately you will resemble. Whatever it is that you ascribe to worth to, you will become like. You know, people who worship cold, hard cash, interestingly, end up being cold and hard. People who worship pop stars. Isn't it funny that suddenly they look exactly like the pop stars they they revere? The same haircut, the same clothes, the same language. Whatever it is that you focus on, ultimately you will resemble for either ruin or restoration. There is something unbelievably powerful about the power of worship to transform. And finally, worship releases. In the book of Revelation, there is a definite and intended link between the worship of God's people and the release of God's purposes on the earth. I think actually the book of Revelation is a reflection of the prayer that Jesus taught us as his disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's worship. We honor his name. And then it goes on to say, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. After the worship of chapters four and five, there is the opening of a seven-sealed scroll which occupies chapter six. And in the ancient world, without going into a lot of detail, the only document that was sealed with seven seals was a person's last will and testament. And the unlocking of this scroll, which as you study the book of Revelation, we find out to be God's will. The unsealing of God's will so that it comes upon the earth follows the worship of God's people in chapters four and five. So through the book of Revelation, we are presented with a sequence of judgments, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, and they are not a picture of an angry God on a vindictive vendetta against the people and the planet. Judgments are designed to deliver the planet to rinse the planet of its evil, to remove the planet uh, and the people of the planet out from underneath the dragon's claws and rest them back, as it were, under the full sway of the worthy lamb. And the, progressing ad- the progressive advancing of these judgments that will finally expel all the evil from the earth are directly related to the prayers, the praise, and the worship of God's people. You know, the reality is, and it's an amazing reality, that God has chosen to partner with you and me in the redemption of the earth and its people. He said, I want you to join me. And as you consider the flow of the book of Revelation, you notice how every time there's a sequence of judgments that are about to be released, it is preceded by a picture of God's people in worship and prayer. So the the release of the seals in chapter six is preceded by the worship event of chapter four and five. In chapter 7 verse 9 running through chapter 8 verse 5, you've got the people's prayer paving the way for the sounding of trumpets which start in verse 6 of chapter 8. And in chapters 15 verses 1 through 8, there is a picture of a worshipping throng that directly precedes the outpouring of the bowls in chapters 16 through 18. So every time there's a judgment just prior to that, you've got a picture in Revelation of people and worship people in prayer people in in praise, there is a link between them. I don't think that layout is coincidental. It's trying to teach people like you and I that more happens in worship than we can possibly realize. This isn't just about singing a few happy, clappy songs, clapping our hands in the appropriate place, (gasps) yawning and sitting down and listening to the message before we go out and have coffee. Something dynamic happens when a people will give themselves as a community to worship. It centers us, it gathers us, it transforms us, it releases both us and the purposes of God in the earth. Worship creates a throne for the reinstatement of God's rule on the earth. You know, Psalm 22 verse three says, but you are holy, you inhabit the praises of the people of Israel. One translation, I think it's the Japanese says, the people's praise provides you with a great throne. There is something about the reinstatement of God's purposes in the earth through a people who will give themselves to worship. Worship welcomes the flow of God's kingdom purposes into the earth's circumstances. And friends, I know that God is everywhere, but there is a distinct manifestation of his rule where worship and praise is given place to. The presence of God's kingdom power comes and is directly related to the practice of God's praise and in, in, in worship. So I wanna suggest to you tonight that the praise and worship of God's people provides a strategic avenue for his entry into our alienated world. And in our nation as it presently stands with all kinds of confusion, all kinds of fears, all kinds of cares and anxieties about what may happen going forward, I wanna tell you rather than being incredibly fearful and wringing our hands with anxiety, we should be a people who say your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we gather, center ourselves, invite His presence, are changed and become change agents. And there is something about worship that does that. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.